1: Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have a uh, special, kind of an additional episode this week. We have the impeachment trial, which it kind of ended last week, but it ended, ended two days ago on Wednesday when President Trump was finally acquitted. He did this, uh, you know, the traditional post-acquittal, Vengeance, um, kind of free form rap. <laughs> stream yesterday. of consciousness. Yeah, uh, at the at the White House, uh, which was interesting. You know, when when um, when President Clinton was uh, acquitted when he after you know at his impeachment trial 21 years ago, he came out and gave like a very kind of somber, you know, somber, aw shucks, like I'm I'm so sorry for what I did and what I said, i.e., what I did that with 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 Monica Lewinsky and then basically at best not coming clean about it whether he perjured himself is kind of open question but uh but very sort of somber and kind of like okay I screwed up mm-hmm. I shouldn't have been kicked out of office but I screwed up and I'm sorry and uh Trump's a different guy <laughs> right <laughs> and uh and, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's one of the funny things, I mean, some of this is just, you know, the right in American politics, but, but it's very much Trump, that in most parts of our life and culture, if someone says, I was treated really bad, and I was, it was really hurtful to me, we kind of see that person as kind of like a weenie, or kind of like a whine. It's not, it, it, that doesn't show strength. You're a crybaby, but he has this way of kind of like militant crybabyhood, right? <laughs> to make it seem tough, and up there saying, "I should never have been treated this way. This was very hard on me, and I want payback and all this kind of stuff." So that's where we are. We're gonna, we're gonna, um, we are going to uh, kind of wrap up. Impeachment, and then we're going to talk about uh, a couple big exclusives that our Josh Kovensky published uh, a couple days ago. But before we get to that, I want to remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast. And look now you can now you can get Grady's not just the awesome. Cold brew that you get in the bottles or the boxes or all these different you know kind of technologies that you can get it delivered in, but you can also get it to you know work in your coffee maker. So it's desi- this this new version. You, it's designed to work in any cold or hot coffee maker. One bag makes 24 servings of Grady's cold brew exactly the way you want it, hot or cold. You can order online and receive 16 ounces of their famous blend of 100% Arabica beans and French chicory in a rese. Pouch for long lasting freshness. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 20% off your first order at Grady's Cold with promo code TPM or order Grady's
2: at Amazon.com for next day delivery. Perfect. All right. All right. We're joined by a very special guest today, our own Tierney Sneed in the DC office. How are you, Tierney?
0: Hi, I'm great. How are you?
2: Good. Have you slept at all in the last, you know, 16 days or so? <laughs>
0: You know, my sleeping was actually not a huge problem because we started a little bit later every day. I just didn't really have a life outside of sleeping or being at the Capitol. So, <laughs> right. you know, talking to people who are not just like coworkers or other re- reporters or senators has been an adjustment. But, you know, <laughs> other than that, kind of getting back into the swing of things.
2: Yeah, that's great. So obviously, like Josh mentioned, the the trial wrapped up formally on Wednesday, I'm wondering if you, you know, you've been in the chamber and in the halls over the last couple of weeks. Can you share for our listeners just any kind of big takeaways, like through your own eyes, things that you noticed or that stuck out to you that if we were just reading the coverage or watching on C-SPAN, we might not have picked up on?
0: This was definitely very different than other high stakes fights that I've covered in the Capitol. It was very different than Kavanaugh. It was very different than healthcare. Um, And a couple different reasons for that. Um, One was just the format where besides a few days where members did take votes, they were just kind of sitting there and listening. And they were sitting there and listening for, you know, you know, five to 12 hours a day. So that was very different than sort of the normal um, rhythm of things where you have people coming in and out. You have committees meeting. You have caucuses conferencing, there's a little bit more uh, movement and, you know, dynamism in terms of uh, just how you can grab members, how things are changing, how things are evolving. And this was much more rigid. It was a lot easier for members to sort of kind of evade questions and say that, oh, we're just waiting to see how things unfold. Um, And then, of course, there were the press restrictions that were really unprecedented that made it a lot harder to cover because, um, normally, reporters can move about to most parts of the Capitol. That lets us chase down senators who aren't look, who you know, maybe are trying to avoid the press. That allows us to find certain senators and have extended one-on-one conversations where you might you know learn things that they wouldn't necessarily want to say in front of cameras. Um, and that was just pretty much impossible. You know, if we were talking to, report, to to senators, it was because senators wanted to come to the areas where reporters were allowed to be and talk to us. Um, so that made it really hard to just, in the moment at least, get a sense of where things are. We're now kind of getting sort of post-mortem information about how things unfolded. But while things were happening, it was really hard to get a comprehensive sense of where everybody was on any given day on, say, the witness vote or what they thought about a defense that was put forward. It was it was you're really only getting a small sliver of, you know, the people who actually wanted to come out and talk to us because our our movement was so restricted within the Capitol.
3: Yeah. Tyranny, there's one moment that I'm curious to get an insider's take on, which is, you know, when. Uh, Senator Romney took the floor and announced that he was going to vote to acquit on the Abusive Power article, at least... Oh,
2: to convict, you mean? Oh,
3: convict, yeah. <laughs> at least from the office, I think it felt a little jarring, even though we kind of knew that's which way he was leaning, you know, based on his, how vocal he was about witnesses and things like that. I still found the the speech to be rather moving and it seemed to kind of change the narrative or change the mood around the inevitable acquittal a little bit more. So I'm wondering how that felt from being within the walls of the Capitol.
1: Tierney, t- t- before you answer that, is that where, cause if that's what, if that's where we thought he was leaning, I missed that. Like I know that he clearly he was wanted witnesses and stuff, but I was surprised that he voted to convict. Oh, I always thought he would really? convict, okay. but maybe yeah.
3: that was me on an island. Yeah. I'm kind of in between the
0: two of you. Um, It was it was he was obviously always leaning towards voting for witnesses i mean it wasn't even that he was leaning from basically day one he said i want to hear from john Bolton," and Mm -hmm. i do give him credit that he never you know sort of played games on the witness vote he kind of just always said what how he was going to vote so that you know obviously no surprises there but on the conviction vote i you know i kind of saw it cutting both ways you know I, i could see it unfolding either way but when we'd gotten to the point that the other members, who I thought could be 50-50, like you could see maybe Collins being a 50-50, or you, you know, Murkowski less so after she voted for witnesses, but at least before the witness vote, I could see her also being a 50-50, given that she had voted against Kavanaugh. We know she, she does have the sort of backbone to break from her party when she wants to. But once we had seen kind of everybody else that you thought could have kind of cut for conviction, not, it did seem like, is Romney really going to, you know be brave enough to just stick his neck and his neck alone out there, it com- becomes even harder when it's just you bearing the brunt of all that. So I wasn't 100% per- surprised, um, but I also was more surprised on Wednesday than I would have been if I had found out on Monday, if that makes any sense, just because the momentum had been all towards this just full alignment with the, the, with the president on the Republican side.
3: And when, when that happened, was your sense that other senators kind of felt that way? Did there seem to be a Oh, no, support? they were all cut off guard. Yeah, okay. everyone
0: was cut yeah. off guard.
1: I'm sort of surprised that, because if I'm understanding this correctly, he he at least did an interview, you know, put an interview with Fox in the can before that happened.
0: He That's did He th- did about like a, like he did Fox, Several New York it. Times, The Atlantic, his local paper.
1: But it's Fox that like, I mean, I'm sure you, I'm sure Chris Wallace can keep a confidence, but to do an interview, you've got sound check people and stuff. I'm genuinely surprised that, that, that Fox as an organization was able to kind of keep that under wraps. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, yeah,
0: yeah, definitely out of all the, the places that he interviewed, that's the one that, you know, I, I listened to the daily, the New York times podcast yesterday and what the reporter who interviewed him for that podcast before the vote was saying that he always thought it was plausible that he could still change his mind. So maybe, maybe that's also what, what, you know, why this didn't necessarily leak. But yeah, the fact that it was pretty surprising. I mean, you know, some Republicans did say that, that, that they always knew he was on the fence. So I wouldn't say they were completely blindsided, but that, you know, no flag sort of went up to them officially from Romney. was pretty interesting. Um, You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, Not typical that Leader McConnell is surprised by something from the the Republican conference. But in terms of the the mood in the room, I actually made the decision not to be in the chamber for his speech, at least for as long as I thought it was possible um, that he could be a a yes on conviction, because I thought the the more important thing in that scenario would be able to get reaction from members, because, as you mentioned, it it did kind of inject a, a, a final... Bit of drama into a process that otherwise seemed pretty foregone and pretty much headed towards, you know, uh, uh, acquittal by most, if not all, the the party. Um, so I, I I had to make this sort of strategic choice to not be in the chamber for the speech. I watched most of it on a on a television, you know, in the press gallery, closer to where I would need to run to to get reaction. And yeah, it did kind of make things a little bit more frenetic. You know, I think if he had voted to acquit the kind of questions you would have been hearing in the halls, because obviously reporters would have been in the halls regardless, it's, you know, you want your, your quotes for, you know, your your big, big piece about it, but I think the questions would have been more Oh, you know, what does this mean historically? Da 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 da. Will Will Democrats and Republicans get along? Kind of more of these sort of less urgent questions, but with something like that, you know, did you guys know what 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 does this mean? Is 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 Trump going to attack him? It just added a little bit more vigor and a little bit more life into that last day. I you know I mentioned this to David that after the witness vote, things really died down on the Capitol. Like Tuesday morning was as slow as I've seen in the Capitol, not just compared to a normal impeachment day, but even a normal, just a normal random Tuesday, like no one was there, very quiet. It it did kind of wake everyone up a little bit, especially after Manchin also decided to vote totally with the Democrats. It did kind of twist the arc a little bit in a different way than I think everyone was expecting a day or two earlier.
1: I mean, the one thing I would say that sort of in retrospect presaged it a bit is that at least from from where i was looking i mean collins is a master of this now where my sense at least was that collins really couldn't care less anything about the outcome of the trial. Her entire strategy was I need to kind of message that I'm open-minded and, and very concerned and not just a kind of a toady for the president and yet also kind of keep it moving. So I don't find myself in a position where I have to cross the president. And obviously I think that probably from McConnell and Trump, fine. You needed to vote for witnesses. Great. It didn't matter. So fine. We don't care. Uh, and um I mean certainly Lamar Alexander was there and and also Murkowski. I mean, all the kind of like it can't be a fair trial, ergo, I'm gonna vote again I mean it makes no sense at all. But but Romney he didn't seem to do anything of that. He 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 was saying things that were superficially similar to Collins, like I really think we need to see witnesses. This makes it more more like we need to see, uh, see witnesses. But it seems in retrospect that he was being more just sort of telling us what he thought. And and that was confirmed by this final decision that, uh, you know, everybody's all the, uh, the Republicans and Trump supporters trying to say, well, uh, always been a flip-flopper, always been an opportunist. And Mitt has been kind of a flip-flopper and always been kind of an <laughs> opportunist. But this is clearly demonstrably self-harming. So there's really no other explanation besides the fact that he just thought he had no choice yeah. but to do this.
0: And and the other thing I would add is that um, something that came out in the reporting was that unlike Collins and some of these other kind of maybe people and witnesses, Romney did actually vocally make a case in a, in a Senate Republican lunch trying to urge his colleagues to vote for witnesses. So, you know, it wasn't just like, I'm doing this because I think it makes me look good or will help me with my reelection. Right. Like, I think he, this is, the, you know, the, uh, definitely on the witness question, he wanted that result. And he did say in interviews about the final vote that one of, you know, knowing how hard and, you know, not fun it was going to be to vote for conviction, he was hopeful that John Bolton would, or Mick Mulvaney would be able to come out and, you know, bring evidence that was helpful to the president and would sort of exculpate him in some sort of way. So, I do think, regardless of what you think of kind of his previous Senate or previous political career, I think this stretch of time in the Senate, he was pretty earnest. He was pretty upfront. He was pretty sincere. Like I said, he never played games about the Bolton vote. He always said from day one, "like I want to hear from John Bolton." So I do give him credit. The the final vote was a little harder to read, but at least the witness vote was never hidden from us.
2: Right. it's also important to point out too right that he's not up for re-election until 2024 right so mm-hmm. in four years you know is this gonna be damaging he's also independently wealthy it's not you know it just seems like he's got he's a little more insulated advantages. but it's also true that there's there's
1: uh must be roughly a third of the Republicans are also only up in 2024 sure. yeah I mean, maybe not exactly a third right um, but so yeah it didn't it, it It is true that if he if he was not independently wealthy, if he was up in 2020 might have been a little harder, but it certainly did not help him. There's just it is it is a scientific certainty that this does not help him. I mean, he said in his
0: New York Times interview that, you know, after the witness vote he was getting heckled in the parking lot of grocery stores for, you know, not playing on the team. So even beyond when you when you think about hardship and what makes these difficult, it's not just, you know, am I getting reelected? It's day to day. And after the vote, Senate Republicans were pushing back on this idea from Donald Trump Jr. that, you know, he should be expelled from the party. You know, there was they were they're pushing back of any idea that they would lock him from, other things that they could do as a way to punish him and mcconnell had a line that was like no no dog houses in the in the senate so you know at least outwardly they're 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 saying he's not you know the senate's well, not and, going to punish him for this but you just don't you'll never really know or anytime that he kind of loses out on something you're gonna wonder if this was partly because of this vote that he took
3: well and just realistically i mean in the 538 you know tracking congress in the time of trump statistics he he votes with Trump like something like ninety-one percent of the time. So, you know, I mean, I think he even said in these interviews that he will, you know,
0: he he will support the Trump agenda in twenty twenty. You know, it's it's he he loves all the policy, but this was just a line yeah, too far I think for
1: him. He said that in his speech, like kind of like, hey, I vote for Trump all the time. Right. Like, you know, it was
3: <laughs> which is not to say that he won't face personal retribution for this vote, but I think the whole you know, Don Jr. thing of like, kick him out of the party. I think senators at least were circumspect enough to realize that he is a extremely consistent vote for their favor.
1: Well, and it's, it's also the case that, that, you know, going back to the whole head pike issue, that they have their own interest in limiting the extent that Trump's personal desire for vengeance can get inside the Senate system. They're obviously not they're obviously not uh, that's fine with them in terms of like you have to vote with Trump but coming to that next level once Trump's kind of gotten his you know his big capital a acquittal it's not just a matter of tradition they don't that's 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 not great for them. Right. If 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 something that that the president's son says, like oh yeah yeah absolutely, we gotta <laughs> we have to expel him from from the caucus. Uh yeah, it's
2: it's yeah. Uh, All right. Well, Tierney, we'll let you uh, hopefully get an earlier start on your weekend. Anything else you want to add, or any observations that will kind of stick with you? Um, as we you know, as we close out the week and this historic period. Uh,
0: I don't I don't think so. It was it was you know fascinating to watch. We'll see if this was a you know, once in a generation experience, or if President Elizabeth Warren is facing an impeachment trial in like 2022 or whatever, we'll see. Yeah, stay tuned. But uh, yeah, it was great to cover. And I hope you all enjoyed the coverage.
2: Yes, thank you for all. Thanks for all your hard work. All right, before we move on, let's take a quick break.
3: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news.
2: All right, we have a star studded episode today and joining us now Josh Kavinsky. How are you? Good, how are you? It's been a minute since you've been here, so yeah. nice to see you. Um so you had a couple of big stories this week that that I want to talk about. Um happened they were published, you know, right in the midst of all the impeachment craziness. So I hope, you know, if our readers haven't seen them yet in the midst of all the other news that's that's happened this week. Definitely uh, go back and check them out and, and you'll hear a little bit more about them now. The first of which uh, is a story you published that dug into kind of the origins of the pressure campaign on Ukraine and the the fact that it started, you know, with Zelensky's predecessor. And we have kind of come to assume or come to know that President Zelensky, the young kind of comedian turned politician, is kind of at the center of this whole, this whole scandal, but... Um, That's not quite the whole story, is that right?
4: Yeah, that's right. And I I think what the story ends up suggesting is that uh, the pressure campaign was going on much longer than anybody had previously thought, Um, which is, you know, I think, as you said, uh, I think in the popular kind of understanding, uh, the pressure campaign sort of thought of as this July 25th phone call, um, where Trump sort of browbeats Zelensky uh, to try and get him to do investigations in exchange for security assistance and subsequent, you know, the um, withholding of military aid. But uh, what the story suggested was that not only did it kind of predate Zelensky, but it kind of predated him by a few months at least.
2: Um, So, yeah, give us the timeline and kind of a little bit of um, sort of the the five W's in a way of, of this story.
4: Sure. So it's uh, the story is basically that in late February, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, they're basically Rudy really Giuliani's henchmen. Uh, you know, they hold a couple of meetings with top Ukrainian officials, and they end up in Kiev in late February 2019. And there, they meet with the Ukrainian president. This is Zelensky's predecessor. He's a guy named Petro Poroshenko. He's a Ukrainian oligarch who came to power after the revolution in 2014, and he has a problem uh, with the U.S., which is that. He is perceived by the Trump administration to have interfered in the 2016 election on Hillary Clinton's behalf against Trump. Um, They think he did that a number of ways. There's not a lot of evidence to suggest that he did. But one of the ways that he is seen to have done so is via Paul Manafort. Uh, I think listeners will remember that Paul Manafort had to resign in August of the uh, 2016 presidential campaign because a uh, ledger appeared in Ukraine showing that he had. Uh, it was like res-
2: handwritten. Right? Yeah, it was like a
4: handwritten bribe ledger showing his name next to 12.7 million dollars <laughs> in payments, which, yeah. like, I think, like I think Steve Bannon, like called it like a kill shot for his like political, you know, life. Um, so in any case, that was leaked by Ukrainian law enforcement to the New York Times. And it was seen as like basically a coordinated attempt by the Poroshenko government to hit out a Trump, who was seen as a pro-Russian candidate at the time. Um, so Poroshenko, you know, going into Trump's victory and his presidency, has a problem with the Trump administration. What happens is at this meeting in February, 2019, is Poroshenko is fighting for his reelection, and Parnas and Giuliani's henchmen, acting on behalf of Giuliani, and they say, by extension, on behalf of Trump, offer Poroshenko a deal. Uh, And that deal is that if he announces investigations into Joe Biden in 2016, um, in exchange, he'll get a state visit to the US and Trump will issue some kind of statement of support for Poroshenko, which is seen as maybe salvaging his hopes at winning the presidency. So that's what was known before we did this story. Um, What wasn't known was how far it got. And what we found was we had documents, then we spoke to Parnas. Uh, who basically told us that they got very close to doing an interview with John Solomon and backed out at the last minute? Um that
1: Poroshenko backed, backed that Poroshenko out. Poroshenko backed out. Yeah. Let me let me ask you this because this is and and you can line line this up with where you know where this goes on the timeline, but there has been for months this idea. You know, we we, we kind of plop in with it being Zelensky. But there are these hints of what you just mentioned, that, that, that it had been going on under Poroshenko, too. There's this thing where uh, Ukraine gets some, gets some missiles, seems to kind of shut down cooperation right. with, with the Mueller probe. That is seen as possibly an, er, an early example of you know, trying to curry favor. And it has always seemed like, or at least seemed possible that the Trump people thought they had a deal with Poroshenko. Like, he's going to work with us on this Biden thing and for all the reasons you just described. And then he loses. So kind of all their work has gone to naught. And that explains some of the rush to get Zelensky, kind of like, we had a deal with the other guy. You have to sign on. So where does this line up with that theory, for lack of a better word, or that that? kind of explanation of events
4: um i mean if anything it it buttresses it because what it shows is that they thought they had a deal with the previous government or they thought they were on the road to striking a deal with parashenko
1: and so Um, when when tell us when that interview was supposed to have taken place uh early march i think it was like march if i recall correctly march 11th and Um, when was the the uh when was the elect presidential election it was uh mid-april okay so so yeah yeah sort of uh, Last chance for and Poroshenko to kind of get some new dealt into him. Exactly, especially if part of the deal was a state
4: visit. Um, right. The other thing I would note there is that uh, half of the part of the deal did go through. So Yuri Lutsenko, Ukraine's prosecutor general, does end up doing these interviews with John Solomon. Other Ukrainian officials do interviews with John Solomon, and they make you know disparaging remarks about biden the biden's in them and they also disparage the uh u.s ambassador ukraine maria Ivanovich, which obviously ends up getting trump impeached but um what it suggests is that any one of the big mysteries going forward i think is the extent to which that might have been part of some agreement with the trump administration or with trump's allies um that we still don't know because that part did happen
1: now and and, and when we say that part is the idea that those other guys were kind of working in concert with Poroshenko, but Poroshenko himself was kind of like, I can't quite yeah. go as far as you want me to go.
4: And so you see these in the t- you see this in the texts um, where. Poroshenko himself, you know, he's speaking through intermediaries because, I mean, as you just suggested, he's sort of too big to talk directly to these guys. But people around him are saying, like, look, you know, he really, yeah, it's like we're interested, but like he really can't comment on like Joe Biden in the middle of a presidential campaign. Um, and the interesting thing too is, so we got like a list of questions that John Solomon wrote and was going to ask Poroshenko, and I mean, the questions are literally like, you know, when did you first think Joe Biden was guilty? <laughs> or you know, or it's like, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, but it seems yeah.
3: like, like the interview with Poroshenko got very, very far before he pulled out the last second. Like, it Wasn't it like the day he was supposed to do it or something? It, it was
4: the day of, and the thing there too is that um, they, I mean, they, had the, they knew what was going to be asked because they asked for a list of the questions, right. and so they had a few days to review it. Mm-hmm. And they had scheduled the time, they had scheduled everything, and it seems like what happened is is that um, they were re- reviewing it in their team and somebody internally on their side said like, guys, this is, like, fucked up. <laughs> like, like, you, like, this is a bad idea. Like, you can't do that.
1: Gotcha. And yeah. so it actually ends up being very reminiscent of what later happened with Zelensky. Right. Because you had that uh, interview with Fried Zakaria, and I guess we don't know whether it was hours away or a couple days away, but, you know, arranged, finalized, date and time, and and in in that case, it kind of, Trump gets caught, so he has a, you know a uh it's like a way out. Basically. A way out, yeah. but it's very similar in the sense that you see through this whole process and the president the president of the United States has taken advantage of of this that at various points um he is trying to like Zelensky is trying to make he wants to Get them something that will make them happy, um, and and you know sometimes he's yesing them, other times he's saying yep got it, and then kind of goes dark for a little while, right? It's 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 you know kind of something with a friend who doesn't want to do something <laughs> for you, um, but it's it's very similar. Really want to help, but there are certain things that that the White House is asking for. Right. That even when these people are really up against the wall, in the case of Poroshenko, he's about to lose an election, and in the case of Zelensky, he needs this. You know, as as various people have said, not so much the arms, but he needs that validation from the United States. And, and yet there's certain things they won't quite do. What's interesting about the Parshenko example,
4: too, is, yeah, it's the election. It's, it's his re-election that's at stake. But as you mentioned earlier, Josh, uh, there's this story with the javelin missiles. And one of the big questions about that to me is um, in, in Ukraine, the, so Yuri Lutsenko, the prosecutor general, was running investigations into Paul Manafort. And part of what was the, the deal with the javelins was that he froze those investigations, supposedly. And as those investiga- investigations were frozen, then the javelins uh, were transferred to Ukraine. Um, and it's... Or, or, yeah, exactly. So And it, it's never been quite clear to me what was the kind of quid and the quid pro quo. Um, was it the, the Manafort investigations
1: being frozen or was it cooperation with Mueller? Do, I mean, do those end up being kind of the same thing at some level? Or are they fairly distinct when you look up close? They're distinct when you look up close. Okay. And
4: it's uh, still an open question if... Mueller, because on the Ukrainian side, they were always sort of saying like, well, we wanted evidence from the U.S. and the metaphor prosecution. Some of the prosecutors who are working on that would kind of make that complaint. But on the U.S. side, it was never clear to me that Mueller was actually asking the Ukrainians for help. Um, cause he could get a lot of and he, he didn't really need them mm-hmm. necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, and, but if you think about it that way, it's almost more interesting if it was just personal investigations in a metaphor that were being frozen. Cause then it really is like, right. It, it goes way more directly to Trump's kind of legal strategy and defense against Mueller. And it's all kind of tied up on that angle. Interesting.
2: And so there was yet another ill-fated interview, right. Right. That was happening later, not quite such high profile uh, guests, but a very high profile cable news host, which is Sean Hannity, Fox That's News right. uh, primetime host, who was going to do an interview with uh, Victor Shokin, the disgraced kind of former prosecutor general of Ukraine, guy who has an axe to grind with Joe Biden, right? And um, if listeners remember, uh, Parnas and Fruman, the Giuliani kind of uh, homies that we're talking about, they were arrested, leaving... An airport in DC, was it Dulles? It was Dulles, yeah. On their way to Vienna? Is yeah. that right? Yeah. And the when they were picked up, this was the, the trip they were trying to make to arrange this interview between Hannity and, and Shokan, is that right? That's right. So, yeah, tell us more about this story.
4: So yeah, we also got text showing that uh, they in the days leading up to their arrest at Dulles, they were like texting with um, a booker and the executive producer for Hannity's show and Fox um, setting up this interview with Shokin, Um, and it, it's very funny cause they're like, you know, talking about getting a translator cause he only speaks Russian. He doesn't speak English or he speaks Ukrainian as well. Um, and they're like, and the Fox news producer is like, Oh, don't worry. John Solomon recommended us a great translator. <laughs> or like, so yeah, but, um, what, I mean, what, what it suggests is so that wait, like, was Parnas going to be the translator. Is uh, <laughs> that the idea? It, it's not clear from the text. Okay. Yeah. But, um, it, uh, what it suggests is that, you know, this happens in early October. And so at that point, the whole scandal is broken open. Um, you know, the because of the transcript of the call and the whistleblower complaint, the general contours of what happened and even the details were basically understood. So, what it kind of suggests was that Hannity was to play this early role and like. Um, making this argument that the Republicans have since made, which is that uh, there was a there there, it was fine to order investigations because there was real criminality. And Viktor Shokin is a Ukrainian guy who's really at the center of the allegations of criminality against the Bidens. So it would have been uh, a uh,
1: you know a platform for him, a really really big platform to him to go forward and you know, make his accusations. Now, why didn't they, uh, you know, Fruman and 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 Parnas get arrested, but mm-hmm. Shokin's still in Vienna, and, right. and I'm sure they can come up with some other. You know, scroungers who can. Why didn't it go forward? Yeah, it, it it's not clear.
4: Um, I'll be because we, partly because you know, Parnas is the source for a lot of this, and so right. he's arrested and he cuts, he breaks off contact. But Wasn't it there
2: happen. in this in the Hannity story? There was a was it a text or a piece that you reported on that? Uh, Shokin pulled out too, right? Or something, or he was recovering? Oh, yeah. So there's this What was other, that all about?
4: So Some people might remember that a month or two ago, Rudy Giuliani tweeted that uh, Shokin had died twice and been resurrected. <laughs> um, and so this was, may have been an instance in which Shokin died and was uh, resurrected. Uh, and to be clear, yeah. <laughs> I assume they meant he had,
1: what, like a cardiac event and was so
4: resuscitated? It's not clear what happened, but he... Okay. Um, I know, it, it's, all, it's all really weird, but like... Uh, in the kind of expanded, extended universe of Rudy Giuliani conspiracy theories, right. um, Shokin was poisoned. Um, in recent weeks he's claimed that Joe Biden tried to have Shokin whacked um, which is like you know another no, no level it's but, a natural uh,
2: conclusion to the whole thing <laughs> right yeah
4: <laughs>
1: well and there is and there is a I mean not to validate this but there is a history of poisonings in Ukrainian yeah. politics who's the guy well, like 10 years 10-15 years who's
4: so uh, Victor Yushenko yeah. it's, 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 it's very interesting you say that because they uh, hired a doctor in Vienna a Ukrainian doctor in Vienna to try and diagnose Shokin's poisoning and the guy they hired was actually the guy who uh, diagnosed Yushchenko's poisoning back in like 2004 <laughs> okay. Okay. which is like a very if you think about like a, a place where you can just like pay doctors to get the whatever diagnosis you want right it's like sort of like you know the gold standard <laughs> right, <laughs> well, like, right. like poisoned
1: ukrainians right right yeah. right right, right. Yeah. well yeah. okay yeah uh, yeah that's pretty well so, but this is great reporting i mean this is like uh i was i was so uh excited to see these pieces and and you know it's it's funny uh david Kurtz and I, uh, our executive editor, were talking about this, that um, the impeachment is over, but the impeachment doesn't really have anything to do with this as a story. And one of the interesting things about this scandal case story is that the a mix of a lot of journalists and the House investigators uncovered a lot of information about this, and more than enough to make clear the basic outlines of what had happened, and that the president of the United States was not just involved, but was the central person orchestrating the entire thing. Having said that, there's still quite a lot that we do not know. And I think the the key thing we don't know is this point about when it started and who it started with. And there is, you know, what, what, what you have just reported here, confer, you know, confirms pushing it back in in the timeline. But there's a lot, and, and especially if it was, if it is Lutsenko dropping his investigations into Manafort that sort of, you know, frees up some weapon shipments from the United States, all of these things point to it not even so much being a question of when did it start, that it didn't start at all. It's just a continuation of the Russia story, From 2016 of, you know, oh, they, you know, uh, uh, this thing comes out and Paul Manafort gets fired. So it's about it's about uh, ending ending investigations into into Paul Manafort, exonerating Paul Manafort. We know, although I would certainly like to see if we can find out more. We know that Paul Manafort seems to be the one who's sort of giving the map to Rudy Giuliani. But talk to this person, talk to that person, you know. So these things all go together. And so there's a lot that we still don't know. And the fact that, that, that this impeachment trial is over is, at least in my mind, kind of irrelevant in terms of, you know, getting to the bottom of what happened well, here, because a lot we don't know.
3: And in your mind, and possibly in the, at least the House investigators' minds, I mean, I think the last we heard from Jerry Nadler is he said, at the very least, that it'd be likely that they would subpoena John Bolton themselves. So, I mean, and it remains to be seen if the political air is just going to go out of the room after the acquittal and as the elections start up. But we're seeing, at least in the very ending days of the impeachment process that there's some kind of hunger from at least some people on the house side to keep digging
2: and we have uh the Bolton book coming out in like a little over a month too so is
1: that i saw something today that and i I wasn't quite sure what this was based on but i saw someone referring to it you know if it still comes out as scheduled and that it's still kind of hung up at the white house so i think that
2: i think that probably is true i haven't seen the actual release date change officially i think what is right. march 11th or 12th or something like that but, but clearly but yeah, they're kind be, of it could
1: be they're yeah. trying to kind of go to war with him yeah. over that i mean i'm curious it's it's a very funny thing because you know to trump it's just sort of like you know in his mind you were working for my business so you don't have you know you have right. no right to talk could, about I mean, my
2: business could you make an argument simon and schuster could just be like fuck it we're publishing this and it's you know there's it it gets very weird because
1: a lot of this whole pre-clearance stuff is we don't have prior restraint in this country. And these are just facts. It's written on a book somewhere. There's no there's no law that says that you can't print more copies of it. And to a great degree, the whole pre-clearance thing only works because most people, you know. They're part of the national security world. They want to kind of, you know, do the right thing within that system. And most of them don't want to be expelled from that world. And if you, if you don't go through this system, you can lose all your security clearances and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of it is based on voluntary compliance. And to really, I think the way this works is, technically, if the sort of the official people who do this stuff, you know, not just like Don Jr. or something, (laughs) but the official people who do this stuff says, hey, this right here, this is classified information. You sign these documents. You can't do that. In theory, that person could be, I think, charged with a crime. So it's not totally voluntary compliance, but they're just facts. They're, They're facts on a piece of paper right now. So they're not, Simon Schuster can do whatever it wants. Obviously, they might not do that if Bolton says, "Hey, you're going to get me thrown in jail or something right. like that." In practice, there's not a lot that that we we don't have prior restraint. The government cannot say these things cannot be published. They can punish individual people who who helped it happen. Uh, but I very much doubt that yeah. that book is not going to be published.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. Josh, thanks for your great reporting and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Remember that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is
1: brought to you by the caffeinated people at Grady's Cold Brew <laughs> One and iced coffee. Yeah. If you're ready to give it a try, you can get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Or if you're in a rush, you can order Grady's at Amazon.com for next day delivery.
2: All right. Have a good weekend, everyone. All right. Later. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.